Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today, the boot is very much on the other foot as I'm caught by one of the most outspoken and brilliant voices in Adland, copywriter, author and great friend of the agency, Steve Harrison, rocked up in Reading, tore up the usual script to record a special bonus episode of Call to Action. Grab a drink and enjoy a more relaxed chat as Steve and I shoot the breeze on all things gasp and agencies with an extra dose of eloquent fire for good measure. It is Steve, after all. Over to you, Steve. Well, this is an unusual situation for you, I would have thought, Giles. Although I think you have done this once before, and the, the poacher has turned gamekeeper, or gamekeeper has turned poacher. And that, I believe that conversation was more about what you could call your extracurricular activities more than anything. And I think people are fa- you are well known for your extracurricular projects, the wonderful isolated talks and the Call to Action podcast and uh, and Delusions of Brandy, which you wrote with the, with the fabulous Ryan. But I imagine that people don't realise that you also run a very successful agency, or not as many people realise that, and have been doing for how many years is it now? We turn 13 next week. Gosh. We'll become teenagers. Oh, bloody hell. Okay. It's going to be even more difficult, are you? <laughs> God, could Slamming that be possible? Doors. Could that be possible? Your wife will swear more. Um, and you've, you've, your shop has won many accolades. B2B fastest growing agency, B2B top agency, and, and you know, kind of a fair share of awards for your work. So I thought, let's talk about that today. The lesser known aspect of Giles, the Renaissance man, Edwards. So, GASP been gone for 13 years. I know what the acronym stands for. It's Giles, Andrew, Sophie, Paul, Paul. Um, but I, I did wonder whether it's a, it has a double entendre, whether there's something, if you didn't know that it was named after the, the rather solipsistic um, thing of naming it after the four founders. Does it have a a, a, a mean and a secondary meaning, which it, might mean something yeah, well, to the uninitiated? It hasn't Is it like gasp? That was gasp. Gasp. That was hard work. Or gasp. <laughs> that, that. Oh, gasp. Have you seen that piece of work? It's amazing. Is it? <laughs> any and any post rationalisation. I think any and all post rationalise any and all gasp gasp. I mean, I, I like gasp. We we. It's not as if we were blessed for choice. We had gasp or spag or. Um, well, you didn't have to name it after the band. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. I mean, you know, Steve Harrison and Ian Tra- Turnbull was my first agency, and what would that have turned out like? Yeah. That's true. <laughs> Trotters independent traders. Yes, yes. Uh, and so, I, funny enough, in one of our first ever New Biz meetings, one of the client directors actually made the same point and asked if our work would make them gasp. Mm. That's good. That's which, good. Which isn't a bad thing. It's yes, not a bad yeah, association. Yeah. 
and I and I and I do think there's there's some benefits to being called gasp, uh, no doubt as to how you've just concluded for that question, and I think that there can only be benefits to having those associations. Yeah. But the brutal truth is, no, it was just an acronym for the first the, the, the four founders, uh, and two of them left within three weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we killed them. So. <laughs> anyway, good old. But you start, you're, you're an art director, right? Historically, yes, I'm an art director. I started, I suppose, properly my creative career started where we didn't have creative teams. Or when we did have creative teams, there were at least four or five of us. So the accounts I would work on, predominantly it was, it was Mizuno from a kind of sporting sector yeah. and some other B2B clients. There was a team of four of us. And I think within, a, within that team, we had hybrids, we had... Uh, copywriters, we had art directors, but predominantly I was art director. But right. I feel like I'm either an art director who wishes he was a copywriter or the other way around. I've never really known which one I am. Do you, did you have any art director heroes when you were when you were coming through the ranks, you know? Oh, several. Several. Everyone from... So my uh, training predominantly was design yeah. before it was advertising. So the likes of Alan Fletcher, um, Bob Gill, designers who used real wit in their work were people who I hugely idolised. And then when I was given an avenue via uh, Kingston University and their foundation course and actually had that first glimpse into the advertising world, it was all the greats who you'll be familiar with, predominantly white men, which I'm you know more and more aware of now, but at the time it was likes of, of, of uh, Bill Burnback and mm. Howard Gossage and... Mm. Uh, a man you know very well. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you didn't... I don't think you're blamed that they are... You ought to blame that they were white men. It was a pretty narrow field, wasn't it? Um, Indeed. Ethnically and gender-wise. But, yeah, you said that you like people who bring wit to the party and uh, Smile in the Mind is one of your favourite books, I adored it? it. I absolutely yeah. adored Smile in the Mind. I spoke to um, Nick Asprey about it recently. Um, he was fortunate enough to work on the most recent edition and there was, really? Yeah, and there was, there was something about that book when I discovered that, and it probably was in parallel with a couple of my tutors, mm. um, including a great guy called Chris Draper, who I think would describe himself as a, as a photographer ahead of an art director, but he was incredibly creative and talented. And it was, it was when I began to actually practice advertising that I really saw the, the, the kind of world of commercial creativity, whereas previously, and certainly when I was at college and university, it was all about aesthetics and design and, and you know pure graphic design yes. and yeah. not really on its application. And the functional the functional yeah. aspect of it. Very much functional. Yeah. Which could be quite flat and, and dry. Yeah. Um, but as soon as I could see that wit that is just absolutely smiling the mind. There's other books, The Art of Looking Sideways, there's a few I think that I can probably claim open that door to me and seeing seeing that use of wit has always been really really important for me sure. and did you have any art director heroes or oh, you've said Gossage and you've said um, you know kind of like Burnback and whatever but was there anybody out there a contemporary a contemporary of yours who you felt was, um, was you would aspire to there was um, a typographer um, what was his name was it Barnbrook Jonathan Barnbrook? I don't know, I'm copyright really to me. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. So there were there were quite a few. And actually, 
I, I genuinely, what, what I really liked about my time at, at Kingston, and I've mentioned Chris Draper, mm. um, I don't know, I have subsequently tried to discover, I don't know how big a name he was or how known he was. All I know is that he was significant to me and my peers when we were learning the ad trade. Right. Um, but what was, what was I think, significant about Chris was that, and, and most of the professors that, or, or lecturers that we had, is they were all practicing, mm. they weren't just... Mm. teaching nine mm. to five, seven days a week. So they were all actively out there practicing the craft and he was absolutely instrumental. So whether I would say he was someone I idolized or not yeah. or admired, it's probably as close. No, the reason I ask, I've always maintained that it, it, it is a motivator. I think if you're aware that you stand in the lengthening shadow of great men and women, it gets yeah. you up and out to bed, out of bed and into work on a Monday because totally. you may just, may you may just, that may just be the week where you do something that stands alongside that greatness, you know, mm. just possibly, you know, it's mm. the, I think it's a motivating factor, you know, kind of, that one day we can, we can uh, do something worthy of them or whatever. So, but you are, you have a creative, would you say you have a creative department now or are you more of a strategy shop? the way that GASP has developed over the years? Partly the nature of being a small independent and partly because of the way we approach the work that we do, the lines are very blurred, um, which can come across as an excuse for just hiring creative misfits who do a bit of everything. But I'm proud of that tag. Um, I think we, you know, perhaps we do have. But I think we're either a bunch of creatives who excel at strategy or vice versa. I think we do practice strategy. We coined the term proper marketing a few years ago and a very well-known professor, who I'm sure his name will come up soon enough, um, started using the term a couple of years ago, which pissed me off a bit because now it looks like we've nicked it from him, but I don't think that's true. But I think it all comes from our focus on strategy. And coming from an agency like so many agencies who seem to specialise in a particular tactic, I've seen that term get misused. Mm. Um, and, but I think having a team of people who were very well trained in the fundamentals of delivering a strategy, but also having a background as creatives, has really helped us carve out a, a fairly you know, distinct and effective space sure. as an agency. Does it mean you write your own briefs? We try, well, if we need to, we can. We're not precious in as much as... I think some people think we are difficult to work with, and that might be true. But I think we're difficult with the best intent, and I think we do like to write the brief, or at least interrogate the brief. And that doesn't... I don't mean that to sound as arrogant as it might do. All I mean is we know how significant a tight, concise brief is. So failing a client delivering one, we will attempt to write that as part of that partnership that we have with clients. But Mm. I think that's a process anyway. I don't think the brief is something that we should expect to be perfect every time. And I think it takes that conversation and that interrogation and that process. You mean the client's brief or the agency's interpretation of it? The client's brief. The client's brief, yeah. No, no, I mean, the client's brief, I would have thought, is usually describing their marketing problem to you. Yeah. And what then needs to be worked on is, how does that, what, why, how do you turn that into something that is interesting to the consumer? Yes. Um, and I think that most people don't make that step. Yeah. Um, but I think as a good creative person, I think eventually you do become a good, you do become a good person planner. I mean, a lot of people I used to work with, you know, kind of made that leap 
you know, kind of, uh, because you've got to take something that the client has given you, and if you're any good at creativity, you've got to then turn that into something that is interesting to the person you are creating for, and that's the consumer. So I suppose working in a small shop, you know, kind of, you're almost forced to do that, aren't you? You, you take that on board, whereas in a big agency, you remain in your silo yeah, yeah, you know, and complain. Yeah. You complain about bad briefs, whereas when you're working in your own agency and it's a small shop, you you are forced to take that responsibility. Well, I think you made the comment to me a while ago when we spoke about if you're in a small agency, you are front line, Hmm. and and maybe you're closer to the coalface. I think might have been the the metaphor that you that you perhaps used, which I think is very true. Yeah, I mean you are you aren't insulated from the commercial realities that your clients face, mm. nor should you be insulated from the practical realities and needs and wants of the customers that you're, you're serving, i.e. you're writing for. Mm. Whereas you work in a big agency, I think, that you are cotton-wooled against both. You yeah. know? Um, but I'm probably getting my head ahead of myself in. Would you, would you ever consider working in a big, big shop? Do you feel, do you feel you've missed out on anything by thus far staying small possibly mm-hmm. I think it'd be silly for me to say I might not have missed out on something because you can't know what you don't know mm. I know that I was deterred from joining big network agencies by an older brother of mine who spent yeah, his career with big network agencies uh, so rightly or wrongly and I suppose if the time happened again and I had an even younger brother, I might deter him from being an independent because <laughs> I might relate to the pains right, and the struggles yeah. of that and the grass yeah. is always greener. So, so, the, so the honest answer, Steve, is I don't know. I, I genuinely, I don't know really. And I have no, I have no kind of us versus them no. opinion necessarily. All I know is that there are talented people who I admire hugely that I'd like to work with and there's the context of working in a big agency versus a small agency which might not provide the conditions required to do great effective work and if half of what I believe or half of what I've heard is true about the way some of the network agencies are run and the friction that that introduces and the commercial friction that that can produce um, I'm probably best off in a small gobby independent. Right, right. I think you talked about the Venn diagram of good work and the, on the other axis of that is good money. Good money, and yeah. The two very, and it's a very slim yeah. um, <laughs> sliver yeah. where the two of them coincide yeah. and such. Um, when I was researching um, a book, what I wrote, I spoke to somebody who had quit big network life and they said that uh, the creative work was quote just part of the toolbox of client retention wow. I didn't wow. even know what it meant right you know wow. but, but the creative work was simply part of the toolbox of client retention and the aim was to come out of the other end with the client still on the roster right. you know I mean what a you know what a what a soulless existence yeah. that must be. I do, I do sympathise with, with, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm spinning this too much in their favour. I do sympathise with the commercial pressure and realities of needing to pay mm. salaries and, and, and cover your overheads, etc. And operate as a business that can mm. exist. But I do wonder if we are guilty too much of becoming subservient and not valuing the expertise and the value that we can bring yes. um, as an agency. Well, I mean, I worked for Ogilvy, I worked for, um, for Wonderman. So yeah. it is possible to do good work 
uh, within the within the within the structure of a large global network. So, mm. but um, you've just got to want to, you know. Yeah. Um, I think I think that's probably it. And well, and when I think back to to some of the the, the ads that I recall growing up, um, the likes of the Barclay card ads yeah. that Paul Feldick was involved in, yeah. and and. Um, Trevor Robinson, OBE's, yeah, Tango, yeah. Orange Man, all yeah. the classic Guinness ads, etc. They all come out of big agencies, yeah, don't they? Absolutely. And and so it would be ridiculous of me to claim that there isn't some of the greatest creative talent within those 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 shops. Yes. Um, but I suppose I suppose I wonder how much that may have changed and how much forces are kind of driving talent out of those places. Yeah. And I don't know the answer, I don't know that is happening. I certainly hear lots of noises and, and, mm. and hear of lots of different, either agencies reforming into different types of entities or consultancies, like the likes of you know Droga5, who we, yeah. we, we mentioned briefly earlier. So it's a complex, it's a complex one to answer that. Do you think you could work? I mean, I, I eventually realized that I was unmanageable. Yeah. And that's why I had to start my own agency. Um, so, do you think you could? Do you think you're manageable? I do. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, know if, I know if Sophie was with you, oh. then, then you probably could be manageable. But <laughs> so if you weren't can, allowed to take your wife with you. Yeah, well, Sophie can only operate where there is no HR department. Right. Um, right. We once had a. <laughs> I, I shouldn't put this out, but I know this will get out. But she once replied to an HR related question from a team member at GASP and said, just email gofuckyourself at gasp.com. Right. Um, um, right. which, is, which sums up her uh, approach to HR. I, I, I don't think I'm unmanageable at all. And, and in fact, I think there's an assumption that people make, uh, not just within the industry, but any business owner makes an assumption, or people who know business owners assume that you could never work for someone again. Right. And, and I've never thought that would be true of me. Mm. I just know I would only be able to work with or f- and for other people. I've got no issue with hierarchies. No. Um, for example, so I would quite happily go into an organisation and be managed if the person managing me was inspiring and interesting yeah. and actually I wanted to do yeah. good things with. So I don't, I don't think it's quite as binary as, as I think in some instances it might be or some people might have that opinion. So potentially, yeah. potentially I could, yeah. Good on, good on. I'm also obsessed with learning. I think, I think yes. you know that. I'm, I'm obsessed with learning and, and actually I wonder if perhaps there's only so much you can learn if you are part of that senior management team of a small independent. I'm yet to reach a line where I think, well, that's it, I'm all maxed out, I can't learn anymore, or I'm not learning as I'm going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it would be logical to, 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 to conclude that if I'm working with more and more people, I'm gonna learn more. But you have the freedom here to, which you would never have, and that is to choose the businesses you work for. And that is, I think that was, for mm. me, that was the greatest boon to being a uh, to to running my own agency, to, yeah. to uh, choose the businesses I worked for and choose the people who I worked with. Yeah, I think those, those were the two great freedoms that you had. Yeah, uh, that, I, that I had, and you, I mean, yeah. you you turn work down, don't you? Yeah, we do. We turn work down. We turn pitches down. We 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 probably turn down eighty percent of pitch opportunities that we really? presented. Because we're, we're a small team and, and pitches have a cost and maybe that cost is, is proportional as you grow and become a much bigger entity, but for us the cost is significant to participate mm. in a pitch. And actually, turning down a pitch doesn't have to be the end of that conversation. We've turned down pitches and, and 
won the work, yeah. not because we've turned it down, but because turning down the pitch opportunity has led to the questions yeah. and given us an opportunity to qualify the client and understand that they really do want us to specifically to work for right. them, which often isn't the case in pitch opportunities. You might just be part of a due diligence process mm. and you happen to be an agency that's similar to another agency that they are interested in working with and you're just there to tick a box. Mm. So I think for us, the challenge is how can we qualify that as effectively as possible? And for us, turning down the opportunity, respectfully, of course, yeah. um, has often led to us qualifying the opportunities. Well, they will um, ring you later, or you give yeah, them a call three we'll months later. We'll give them a call and explain and say, why yeah. we don't want to participate yeah. in the pitch. And then actually that can be quite telling, because either a client will say, okay, fine, we understand, never mind, and you might never hear from them again. Yeah. But in other instances, a client will ask why, and it gives us the opportunity to maybe pick holes in the process that they've outlined. Yeah. It may allow us, as it does increasingly, to take the famous, I think it was BBH approach when they first pitched for Levi's, which is to just be honest and say that actually the conditions that you're affording us to present in this pitch process don't afford us sufficient time to do the work properly. Yeah. The problems are almost always strategic. And actually, to define and to build a proper strategy will yeah. require a lot more resource on your side and our side to do that effectively. But we can demonstrate that we can solve your problem from case studies. Mm. And often that conversation alone validates something to the client that actually not only are you confident in your own process and ability, but you flag something that, that is flawed in their own yeah. process. And actually, if they're receptive to that, that can be a really useful way of qualifying the people. It's at very the clever. Client. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't always work, and I'm sure we've turned down work that actually would have been beneficial, if not, you know, at least financially for the agency. Yeah. Do you turn down clients who you feel just aren't the right fit? I mean, you just don't, you know, kind of, this is the work they've done in the past. How, why on earth are they, why on earth do they want to talk to me? Because they've never bought good work in the past, you know? Yeah, is I... That, feature in your decision? We've, I mean, yes, we have turned down work um, from clients. Probably not, so I'm just thinking back now, probably not because of the work they've done in the past, but more so because of the work that they're asking for. Right. Or there's something about the, whether it's timing or budget or the something to do with the process or however, whatever mm. criteria they're using to award the work um, might not just seem right for us but more often than not if we turn down work it's because clients are just not the right type of people or they might be rude we've had instances where we've had um i think in two instances that i can recall fairly young members of the team who have been spoken spoken to really inappropriately right. and that's just not you know it's just not okay it's just no. not acceptable is it and actually to normalize that and to expect people to be spoken to in that manner yeah. sets a precedent and that precedent's really dangerous yeah. And as a tiny agency, I can't pay people extra salary to put up with that type no, of nonsense no. and shit no. and abuse. Not that that's a route that I should, you know, should even suggest is the right way to go. But actually, unless you look after your team, mm. you can't expect your team to want so to. So what did you do? Day. Well, we sat to, we've sat to clients because of that. that. We had one instance where we sat to client and, you know, maybe the context of the client doesn't sound quite as dramatic as it could do because it wasn't a huge, massive, massive multinational company, sure. but it was a, a really interesting fashion brand. Yeah. But the lady who ran the business was just very, very rude to, to one yeah. of our account managers. And so we sat them immediately on the spot. And that client, <laughs> <laughs> the client actually word for word said, you can't do that. 
I think if she saw how bloodshot Sophie's eyes were, she'd have realised that there wasn't really much comeback. Um, and actually, this client, to, to give her credit, not that I've named her, she actually did apologise later and she ran sure. the agency to apologise. But, but it was too late by then. It was, well, it was too late. It was too yeah. late. It's just not acceptable. Um, I, I don't doubt we'd be richer. And I don't doubt, actually, Steve, without, I don't, I'm not trying to make it sound like I'm a good person to work for because I'm under no illusion that I'm not a, I'm not a good... I know yeah. I'm not a good person to... I'm not a good at managing people. I'm terrible at it. But there's a few things that I think we can do, and that seems to be one that has yeah, happened. To look after the stuff. Yeah. We interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host, Giles Edwards, on 0189-952-007. Only the other day, some pod-listening companies did just that, calling for guidance on strategy and brand identity. But we're not asking you to do that. Nope. Anyway, back to the show. There aren't very many good things about getting older, but one of them is... You care less about what people, you, you know, you, you realize that I don't give a shit what this person thinks. What, what do I care? <clears throat> Oops. Uh, well, there's only one Bob Hoffman. Episode 24 of Call to Action was a classic, but hold on. We used to there have a three criteria for whether we would pitch, and they were, can we do good work, which had to be met, and then the other two were, will we make money, or do we like them? Will yeah. we enjoy working with these people? So two out of three had to be ticked, but the one that had that was absolutely imperative was can we do good work with them? Yeah. And we did fire Virgin Atlantic, which was uh, was, a, was a bit of a hefty hefty chunk out of our. But yeah, they were just rude to us, you know. They were yeah. Virgin in those days were the rock and roll yes. aspect of the relationship. You know, yeah. they saw themselves as the rock and roll aspect and and treat everyone else's suppliers essentially. And you know, kind of we. It wasn't on, and I think we, we got rid of another piece of business. But it's great for internal morale. Yeah. Great for internal morale. That you're looking after that the people come before the before the, the bottom before the money. Mm. You know, there's a great story of Frank Lowe getting everybody together and announcing everyone. I think it was at Lowe Howard Spink in those days got everyone together and said, "Ladies and gentlemen, this is about eleven o'clock," and and had champagne on the bar. And said, we seem to have misplaced the Ford account. And, you know, kind of like the whole, because everyone hated working at it, everyone, the place erupted. You know, we seem to have misplaced the Ford account. And we did the same, we seem to have misplaced the Virgin Atlantic business bugger, you know. But you're right, Virgin does, or, or, or perhaps still thanks to the work of Andy Nairn and, and the Lucky General lot, who, mm. who, who've um, managed part of the account. But we, we, I remember working for, was it Virgin Cargo even? And even Cargo part of their business was seen as rock and roll to <laughs> the agency. Because really? it, it was Virgin, it was all Cargo, yeah. it was all yeah. just, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't particularly sexy, the work. It was, I mean, relative to the com, com, uh, uh, competition it probably was, but yeah, even Virgin Cargo had that reputation. Do you think that being your own boss sometimes, I mean, do you need well, you've got Sophie, so that answers that you're, you're, for, the, for those who do not know, Sophie is the, is the boss, yeah. and Giles is a, is a partner um, in both senses of the word. But do you think that bosses do, you know, they need somebody driving along in the chariot with them saying, you are only human, you are only human. I mean, you're the boss not only of this agency, but you, you run 
you run, um, you know, kind of the, the isolated talks, you run the calls to action, you are a face in the industry, you know, whether you, whether you would admit that or not. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know how to answer that really, it's a, tr- it's a tricky one. I, I, know, I know certainly that both Sophie and I would have struggled to have made it to 13 years old, whatever mm. we are, without each other, mm. because I think being a boss in isolation solo would have, would, would have just been too big a slog. I, I enjoy being... Now if that, do I enjoy being a boss? I don't know, Steve. I don't even know if I enjoy it. Yeah. I like having freedom. And it, how about freedom and control, though? Because you can... You, I mean, unless you run a very democratic shop, you do make the decisions mm. about what work who you work for, what work goes through, etc. So yeah, you you true. you know, you do steer very much the ship, I would have thought. Yeah. Yeah, very much. Which means I'm not particularly liked. Really? Well, within the agency. Really? I'm liked outside of the agency oh, more right. than I am in the agency. <laughs> that's just that's true. I mean in fact you've seen our offices, albeit briefly, yeah. but it's not rare for everybody in the team to be over here in this side of the office and I'll be on my, you know, the mm. desks on the other side. Mm. Um, and I mean, I, I played you a voicemail from Sophie earlier um, that she sent for no real reason. I mean, that wasn't provoked at all. It was just an update that yes. how she was feeling about. Yes, it. yes, you did. Yes, um, yes. Um, but yeah, I think that freedom is important actually, and it's probably something that I don't appreciate because I've had it for yeah, 12, 13, 13 years. years, and actually I wouldn't know what that was like and why we're taken away. But I do worry that sometimes I'm too pig-headed. And actually, maybe there's decisions that are made that aren't ideal in terms of turning down work or turning down opportunities. Um, I don't know. Do you have a board? Or is it just you and Sophie? No, it's just, it's just me yeah. and Sophie, yeah. To that point, Sophie and I rarely agree. Right. And perhaps that's partly why That's why she sent me that message. That's why she sent me yeah. that message, yeah. 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 We'll have to play that for, <laughs> the, for the audience so that they know what we're talking about. Maybe that can be the melody, the, the music that plays us yeah. out yeah. at the end. <laughs> yeah, but I, I actually think because we disagree so much, it's partly why it works. Yeah. I like to, I like to be challenged. I know she likes to be challenged. Yeah. And I think that's important. So perhaps that's why, if anything does work, perhaps that is why it works, because we're not surrounded by people who just say yes. Hmm. And actually the team here are encouraged to have an, an opinion. Yes, I mean, you say you've recruited some talented misfits. Yeah, other yeah. misfits. And the misfits, misfits are misfits because they, you know, and because they don't, they don't conform, you know, usually yeah. don't conform, and generally I would have thought, yeah. probably speak out when they're not necessarily in agreement with you, so yes. that helps. Um, you don't have a HR person, thank God. Um, when when you when you become big enough to have an HR person, that's when you leave. That's when you disband. I would have thought, isn't it? Yeah. Again, I'm I'm very mindful of my experience not having an HR person. Maybe we'd be better with an HR person. I don't know. I, I um, scale has always been an interesting um, conversation in terms of our ambitions as an mm. agency. I've always been very happy and keen to scale. Our, our agency profitability, um, which of course is related to headcount, right. but I've been less concerned about headcount. You know, my, my hero Howard Gossage used to resign businesses, resign business in order to stay at twelve people. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd, uh, he, oh, you know, if, if if it if it meant that they'd have to hire anybody else, he would resign business. Oh, right? well, you know, yeah, um, see, yeah, just to stay at twelve. Yeah, I can see the thing is, I, I get that, I totally get that. 
And I feel like that kind of culling maybe kept everything so so strong. We also agreed with you about how to get paid. Um, I, I know you've got very strong opinions about being paid by the hour um, mm. and that you should be paid for the value you you, you provide and Howard also, this is in the 1950s, mm. said I will do this job for you for $50,000. Mm. You know, kind of, and there was no quibbling about, you know, yeah. how long will that take you? As long as it takes, but it will cost you $50,000 yeah. for me to do this for you. Yeah. You know, but, but getting paid for ideas and getting paid for the work is very difficult. I mean, I know you're, yeah. you're trying, do you want to talk about getting paid yeah, for Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've always, the, the idea of a billable hours never really made sense to me, even, even coming through at other agencies and timesheet management. Yeah. Um, just seems to commoditize the product. Yeah. Um, I don't think you can commoditize creativity. And also, it seems to incentivize the wrong thing. So if we were to solve a client problem, then it's in both parties' interest to solve that problem quicker. Mm -hmm. And charging by the hour, all it does is create friction because what the agency wants more of, the client wants less of. They want mm. to pay you for less time. So actually, why not remove that yeah. pesky variable? Of course, there are all sorts of things which can only be described in units of time. And you know, the rent that we pay for our office, understandably, mm. we pay. Um, based on units of time, but to describe creativity in units of time just doesn't make just doesn't sure. particularly make any sense. I think most agencies do a mixture of work. I know the IPA would describe it as logic work and magic work or mm. gardening work, however you know whatever mm. however you want to articulate it. But I think predominantly the work that we do isn't formulaic and isn't you know it's like this industrialization of agency work. And the, the problem with that is, in, is it just becomes a race to the bottom. If you're competing on price, the price gets driven down and you just find yourselves in all sorts of problems and the implications of that are immense. Yes, I, I always absolutely adamant that we sold the work first time mm. because, uh, and I never factored in amends, you know, I never factored in reworking, that's why I was very strict with the account people that we go and sell it, we mm. sell it, and if we don't sell it, we go back and sell it, because we, we were working on the just-in-time principle, whereas uh, mm. the creative teams were already allocated next week's work, and it was, you know, kind of, so yeah. yes, amends were anathema to us, Yeah, you know? yeah. and starting again was beyond the pale. Yeah. yeah. So but, what, did you, what did you do with that then? What did you do if work was rejected? Uh, we'd go back and sell it. Right. Or we'd work out whether it would actually been rejected. You know, has this been killed? What, yeah. are, what are you actually not agreeing with, etc.? And we'd say, do you agree with the proposition still on the brief? And they'd say, yeah. And they'd say, well, why doesn't the work meet the proposition? And if they could explain that, well, then we might go back and fix it. But if it was, we don't agree, we've changed our mind on the proposition, it was, sorry, you go back, you go to the back of the queue. Yeah. We start again. Yeah, it's a different You've brief. rejected the brief. You yeah. know, this is not our fault. You signed this off. Mm. It's a contract. You, you, it's a new contract. Mm. So that was, that was how we did. But our suits were very good sales people, not sales people, very good advocates for mm. the team's work. Yeah. You know? Well, that's really important. But I, but I, I wonder, and I don't think there's any one thing that's, that's perhaps making it difficult for agencies to stand up for their worth. But I certainly think, even in the, you know, the time we've been running GASP, that I have at least observed a crisis in confidence amongst agencies. Right. Yes. Um, and I, and I, I do think the 
digital tools, etc., that have been made available in the last few years are partly to blame because they've introduced all sorts of different ways of measuring things. Mm. And these things can easily be sold as commodities or as processes off the shelf. Mm. Um, and it's gearing clients more and more to understand things that can fit really easily in spreadsheets. And until a time where you know we're not paying for clicks for example mm. then then you're never really going to get a nice true measure of creativity or at least an appreciation of creativity it's really it's hard to sell creativity mm. um, there's ways of doing it and, and, and I think one of the benefits of us having a fuller uh, training in general as, as a team is we're able to demonstrate to a client that you can you can um, justify the role that marketing has in building a brand and in driving revenue because all it takes is a basic, you know, building a basic marketing funnel and measuring all those stages of yeah. the funnel that leads to the, you know, the, the big shiny number at the bottom and demonstrating that actually if, if a campaign is to say increase that fluffy metric that yeah. clients don't like of awareness in the market by X percent, we can demonstrate that all, everything else being equal, that's gonna mean an extra two yeah. million on the bottom line. And because a lot of marketers don't seem to practice those kind of core fundamentals of marketing, mm. then we're seen less or, or, or treated with less and less respect because yeah. people don't understand that you do, you're, yes. you're a critical part of business. you're a marketing classicist, aren't you? You would agree with Drucker that the whole point of this is to create a customer. Mm. You know, and if a customer doesn't come out at the end of the funnel, then yeah. you've failed and you are a firm adherent of uh, Professor Ritson. Yes. Uh, and Les Binet and Peter Field. And yeah. you, you, you are a, you know what you're, you know, you are steeped in that, mm. aren't you? You know, yeah, and you much. know your stuff. You know, yeah, well, and I, you're I an think... adherent of classic, the classic orthodoxy of yeah. how, how, what we're supposed to be here for, aren't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, of course. And you put, was it true you put all of your staff through Ritson's MBA? Yeah, yeah. So all of the team well, here, bar I think one, so I think it's 80, we worked it out, 87.3% of us with little misfits have done at least one of the two uh, MBA right. courses. And as an agency, we've actually worked on the courses behind the scenes. We've right. been employed to work on some, you know, totally Oh, gracious me. So around. clients are actually getting so, people with a, with a, a, a very a distinct knowledge of the discipline. How unusual. Yeah, <laughs> I know. That's how unusual. We are. Yeah. But actually, we've used that as a way of, of, of sourcing clients too. So we actually... You know more than they do, I'm sure. Well, perhaps, and, and yes, yes. In some cases. In yes. some cases, absolutely, absolutely they do. But we actually prioritise trying to work with clients who we know have been through the same training yeah. as us because right. it, it just it saves so much time and you speak the same conversation yeah. and you know already that they have the same understanding. You have a understanding. short time, yes. Yeah. yeah. And you, um, all the, you, you know what success, you both agree on what success looks like. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And yeah, eight yeah. clicks, likes and shares. Yes, and, and, yeah. and if we're not able to, we both at least have a bit more trust and faith that the other one will enable us to, to find out what those objectives yeah. could be or at least try and diagnose what the problem might be. So in fact, we had a, there's, um, there's a big, there's a big uh, brand involved in uh, second-hand car sales, which I probably shouldn't mention, but they're everywhere, mm -hmm. um, who approached us. And they actually thought that Mark Ritson was, was part of the team at Gasp. They, I wouldn't they, disavow anybody of well, that. No, 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 but I did, we did you know, understandably clarify that Mark wasn't anything to do. He right. certainly wasn't a director or had any ownership of Gasp. Mm. Um, not that I would be against such a thing. Mm. Um, but his teaching certainly does have a significant part of, of, of who we are and what we do and yeah. what we practice. But yeah, going back to getting people to buy ideas, 
um, I suppose it's possibly easier for the for them to get that when they when they understand the whole point of that idea is to have an effect upon your building of the brand and the sales that will register as a result of that. Mm. Um, that you aren't just having ideas because you want them, because you like having them. Yeah. You know, and because you are not a silk-hearted dilettante, as, <laughs> uh, as some advertising folk might come across. Yeah, maybe less so. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. The only person I ever knew who managed to get clients to pay a lot of money for ideas was M.T. Rainey. The great um, planner at Rainey Kelly Campbell Ralph. She was, she she is a remarkably clever woman. Yeah. But she used to she her thing was ideas before advertising, yeah. ideas beyond advertising, right. which I thought was a wonderfully way wonderful way to position an agency. Yeah. Really, and one which yeah, yeah, possibly yeah. applies to you. Yeah, yeah, but perhaps it does. And I, and I think I um I think I've said this to you before that we um. You asked a question earlier about whether we have a creative department or are we a strategy, you know, uh, agency. But, I've, but, but one of the reasons why we even set Gasp up to begin with was because both Sophie and I didn't really understand why creative people were not exposed to client problems sooner. Um, mm. And that might be reflective of my small sample size of my working experience mm. with only a couple of other agencies prior to setting up Gasp. Or it might be true of the industry, but regardless, the, the, the process of a brief landing in the studio or creative um, department, whatever you might call it, went through this very strict linear line of the account services team. Sure. And, it, and it seemed to make more sense to us that people who could think creatively should actually be involved in the diagnosis of the problem. And so that kind of idea, and it's a way that I sometimes explain why GASP is slightly different to sure. other agencies, is that we, we're, we're just as interested in, if not more interested, in what happens before the brief and what happens after the brief, yeah. which is why typically clients prefer to work with us or it's more beneficial to retain GASP as an agency, yeah. partly because then we're responsible and, and, and we're there. If things don't work, we're there to point fingers out and shout at, which is where we want to be, because we want to be accountable for what yeah. we're doing. But also, we, we're involved in actually the process of writing that brief and diagnosing what the problem is, rather than being someone who receives a tactical brief, mm. where the success of that brief, regardless of your recommendation, is significantly reliant on the brief being written correctly or the diagnosis being strong in the first place sure. yes. um, and I you will have a much greater experience um, of other agencies than I do and maybe that is the oh, I'll it's never work in three. Oh, well there you go <laughs> Sorry, fairly level um, so maybe that yeah. is the norm and, mm. and it, you know I would, I would imagine it is at much bigger agencies but for smaller independents I think that's yeah. quite rare but I, I think what you what the, the, the secret is for me is that you you that you realize you're in business Mm. I'll make the, the I, uh, creatives who burn out, I think, are in show business. I, I, I actually think that advertising is primarily show business, it's not yeah. business, you know, kind yeah. of. Um, it, it doesn't, in no way does it relate to the, the industries that we serve, you know, kind of, we're in show business. And people who burn out as creatives, I think, do so because they take no. They take a brief, 
they're the passive recipients of somebody else's thinking and they simply produce a creative response to that and you and they may get awards for it and whatever but after a while simply turning up on a Monday and then doing the work and then going home and turning up on Monday and doing the work they're in show business and they are therefore subject to the vicissitudes of fashion and faddishness and that's why they eventually fall out of fashion. They become, you know, not the, the guy or the girl anymore, you know, and they drift away. Yeah. But the people who stick at it are the people who realize they're in business mm. and stop reading campaign and occasionally read the Financial Times. <laughs> You know, and and which I think is your thing. I should imagine that there 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 is you're as more you're as likely to see a copy of Business Week in this agency as you are a copy of Creative Review. I would have, would have thought. I would much rather appear in, say, Marketing Week, yes. which is read by clients, than yeah. the drum. Yeah, um, absolutely. Which I think chases fads and fashion a bit too much. Well, speaking of fashion in the industry, um, would you? Have you have any of your clients come to you and asked you for a social purpose campaign? Yes. Have they? Have they? Right? They have. Yeah. So this is a really good topic, and I and I know that um, you know we've spoken about this before, and you've written about it, mm. and I think you're one of my go-to reference points for trying to articulate the the commercial purposes that we have in this industry that we shouldn't be ashamed of. Um, and I think you know there's a particular paragraph in your most recent chapters that I, I regularly read out on this podcast. And I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to try and articulate it now. But I know you have strong views on this, as do I. Hmm. We we have we have recently produced a campaign for a client um, called Zen Internet. Um, the founder of the business is a guy called Richard Tang, and he's one of the most inspiring businessmen I think you could ever meet. Mm. And ever since, I mean, Zen, just for a bit of context, they're an ISP, so they're an internet service provider. They compete with the likes of Virgin and Sky and BT and all of the other bastards who you have to ring up once every <laughs> fortnight because something's wrong with your internet. But Zen was founded to basically be the antithesis, is that the right word, of those types of businesses, right. or, you know, the opposite of that type of business. Um, and they have won the, for example, they've, ad, they've won the Customer Service Witch Award, I think 12 years on the trot, if not more so. And what they do, which is so interesting, is if you call up their business and you have a problem with your internet, for example, whoever answers the phone from internally is tasked with making that problem go away. Now that problem could either be fixed or you could be compensated for the problem, whatever. You're mm. not allowed to hang up that phone until the customer Gosh. is happy and it's incredible. They are more expensive than the likes of Sky and BT but you get a wonderful service. Now mm. that's going slightly off the point. Richard who founded the business has always believed that anyone who runs anything with commercial interests has a, um, has a responsibility to do good. Mm. Um, so since Zen was founded, he has consistently ploughed a huge uh, percentage of profits into local causes and charities and in order to do good. Now, this was, I think Zen is, I'm guessing now, so I could be wrong, but I would guess 20, 25 years old. Mm. And they've been doing this for 25 years. And they've been doing some wonderful things in local communities in and around Rochdale, where they're based, just right. outside Manchester. Now, in the meantime, certainly in recent years, there's been a kind of uh, 
you know, a, a, a means to an end and people trying to use social purpose and jumping on the social purpose bandwagon as if the consumer is, you know, incentivized by that. And so what, what has happened recently is they've asked us to promote the fact they do good mm. because their competitors are claiming they do good, but we know they don't. Right. And so actually the, the campaign we've been running at the moment has actually been slightly mocking the people who claim to be superheroes yeah. and simply articulating that... The, the, for Zen, it is not a superhero thing, it is a doing our bit thing. Right. And so there, there has been a campaign to promote the social work that they do, um, but it's really authentic and I think that's too rare. Well, is it nowadays. something that could be done through PR? Yeah, yeah. And, and there is there is a whole PR wheel that, that's going at the moment mm. and they've, they've recently registered um, as a B Corp, yeah. um, which too few people really realise or know about. Uh, but I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of promotional work going on around B Corp in general. But they, they do. They, they're, they're a very responsible business. They are, of all the businesses we've ever worked with, they probably do good more than any. But is the money they're applying back into the community, is it for projects that are separate from the corp? The core offering, which is the yes. service providers. Yeah, stuff. it, it right. is, but it's right. also true within the business. Mm-hmm. So within the business, they, um, I don't have all the details uh, to hand, but they have a, um, I think their carbon footprint, for example, is, mm. is, is very, very impressive versus every other mm. business and, and, mm. and so on and so forth. So they're making significant steps and changes to their business to make sure that they are doing good with everything that they do from their own networks and services to mm. supporting other charities and, and, and so on. It so sounds on. like they fulfil all of Paul Feldwick's five criteria for being ah. a good corporate citizen. Yes. You know, yeah. that they look after their suppliers, they look after their customers, they look after their employees, they look after the environment and they pay their bloody taxes. Exactly that, they do, and they do pay their taxes. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but they've added in they look after the community in which they've they function, which yes. is um, which is all to their credit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And part of something that they do is they are becoming more and more available because they are relatively, you know, a small player relative mm. to the big the, the big skies and BTs of this world. But as they become available in certain towns and rural areas around the UK, right. they are actively supporting charities and communities within those small villages and towns. Yes. Um, to do good and I think the reason they can they, they can do that and something that Richard never shies away from and he's always very proud to say is because of the commercial reality yes, of them succeeding they're commercially profit. successful yeah yes, because they of, have it, excess it money that allows them to do that and he is the, he remains the only uh, single shareholder in the business yeah. and he is as I said he he's an incredibly inspiring man who um, I, I, I struggle to articulate what I think of him without me making it out like he's a hippie. Right. Um, and I mean that in, with, with, all, with more respect than is probably coming across. I admire him so much. And during lockdown, he was recording video blogs from walking in the woods and trying to do things with nature. And he's just, a, he's a very smart guy, but he's the sort of guy that you could genuinely back. You, and, sure. and you know that you would not only get on with him, but admire all of the decisions he was making from a business perspective. But that, that just drips throughout the whole company. Now they only employ, again, I say only relative to the competition, I think there's about six, seven hundred members of staff, Um, but they live and breathe it day in, day out, and they've never really spoken or shouted about it, because that's not why they do it. And that's why it's one of the few campaigns you'd put under the sort of purpose bandwagon, 
which I can really get behind. Of course, yeah. But the commercial purpose facilitates the social purpose. Entirely, yeah, mm. entirely. I don't think they'd ever try and claim otherwise. Mm. He sounds like the guy who runs Forest Green Football Club, um, the energy uh, environmentalist energy company out in Stroud. But oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I started off our chat by saying that people might well know you more for... I call them extracurricular projects, but they are absolutely core to what you do, and that is the isolated talks and the wonderful call to action podcast and and the best selling books that you've written, and you have got a high profile in the in the industry. Um, do you think there are? I mean, you look around at, at others. Do you think there are? I mean, I, the, the creative people particularly used to have kind of rock and roll reputations in the industry. Mm. You know, I'll give you an example. I had the, good, I had the pleasure of uh, Graham Fink's company uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I first became aware of Graham Fink, not because he'd won loads of awards and everything, you know, of the work that he did. It was back in the early, late 80s, early 90s, and there was a great club called Fred's. In Soho, it was next door to privatised offices, just behind Soho Square, and I made all of my creative department members of of Fred's, you know, just as a perk and whatever. Used to go in there, you know. I remember asking Kate Moss to get off my seat, you know, not knowing it was hers. I said, "Excuse me, love, that's my. Oh, it's yours, love. It's yours, fucking hell." Um, and, at, and at the back of the room was a was a was a board with kind of postcards that you could take. And the one which always stuck with me was one with Fink, and it was Graham's silhouette bent forward, because he's a tall lad, you know. Yeah. So, so the F was him in silhouette bent forward, and it was just I-N-K, Fink. And it was a, he was advertising himself. Yeah. You know, kind of, and as he tells, so told me, you know, kind of he got a lot of stick for it. But yeah. he, was, he was out there, you know, kind of, and there were, you know, the, the, the industry had rock and roll players mm. and do you think uh, is it me just getting old and I mean I'm not in this racket anymore so I'm, I'm you know I'm not tuned into the industry's top of the pops so to speak you know so I don't know who's out there but what is it is it uh, are there the same characters I mean I would say that the irony is that the two biggest characters in the industry are Rory who's yes. f- is 150 and Dave Trott who's slightly younger <laughs> yeah slightly younger I don't know. I don't know. I uh, I remember my my eldest brother is um, how old is he? 60, 61. Right. And so he, he, he's of that ilk, yes. Yeah, he's of that ilk, absolutely. And I remember him telling me a story when he became um, I don't know his official title, chairman of Leo Burnett, whatever he became mm. for a time. One of his first tasks was dealing with this rock and roll esque creative team that they had in the office, and there was a lot of pressure from the group to dismiss this team and to give you a flavor of what they used to do they would you know they would stay late they would work late and before leaving they'd often set fire to the office (laughs) and i'm not condoning that um but they produce some of the best work yeah and and my brother andrew said well we can't fire them because they're too valuable they're too good yeah yeah and so they put up with them setting fire to the office right Um, i mean i think they put you know things in place and sprinkler systems and so, <laughs> so on and so forth and I don't even know if it's fair to even suggest that they were rock and roll kind of profiles that mm. you're alluding to I, I, I don't I you know I can't I can't accurately say there's less of them of course 
Um, but I don't, I don't. I feel like there might be less of them. But I, don't, I actually know. I think the true. I think the, the better answer is there's probably not less of them. We just don't celebrate them in the same way because we don't see creativity in the same light that we perhaps right. used to. And I think part of the point that I think I made earlier about agencies becoming a bit more commoditized and mm-hmm. the services that we sell becoming more commoditized and automated has lessened that kind of sexy value and, and appeal that creativity has. Mm. So perhaps nowadays, the people who are the rock stars, you know, are, I don't I'll know. Say they're the they're, data, in, the, 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 they're the in the shadows playing the keyboards now, and, and they're <laughs> yeah. not quite, you know, on the mic like, yeah. they, like they once were. Maybe that's the case. I certainly think the talent is there. Mm. There's, there's some incredible people in this industry, and there's some incredible agencies, both network and independent, who are really doing brilliant work. Yes. Um, so the talent certainly can't have, have, have lessened at all. Um, but I think perhaps we're just not celebrating them like we should. And also, as you said, that they kept the arsehole arsonists on because they were valuable. Yeah, yeah, you know, they, were they, they were They were too valuable to the agency to let go. Yeah, and, and they now knew that. The, 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 that, that talent is no longer regarded as valuable. No, maybe not. Maybe they can't. Maybe they're not as valuable, like literally not as profitable because of the creative talent anymore because everyone's selling you know, clicks and impressions and mm. all these ambiguous digital mm. metrics that and we seem mo- to And they're horrible named assets. Yeah, 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 they're yeah. just assets of the business. So yeah, I think the fairest answer is there's definitely not less of them. I mean, I know some of them. I, I know people who deserve to be rock stars and celebrated. But for some reason, they're not the ones on the, on the you know, the podium when you go to events. No. And maybe that needs to be corrected. Well, is it because people don't do? They don't set fire to the building anymore, nor um, metaphorically dare they say inflammatory things. Mm. Yeah, you know, kind of. Uh, I mean, people are editing themselves, and they're editing their behaviour. And this is a bad thing, do you not think, for an industry that is that has always encouraged the unconventional, the mm. maverick, the the, the, yeah, the, the people who speak out of turn, who speak their mind and whatever. Yeah. You'd best be careful, mate. Yeah. Well, we both know of, of examples where, because of a particular client that might be, you know, part of the books, mm. you can't be seen to be speaking out against certain things and industry topics. Mm. Well, uh, you ask me how my freelance uh, yeah. work is, is drying up. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Mm. Um, and it's depressing. But I, I actually, I think, the, I think things are, are changing. I think that without putting too much pressure on independence, I think it is up to the independence yes. to try and relight any fires that might have extinguished, certainly for, for in terms of creativity, because the scale and model that we operate doesn't allow for that kind of mass formulaic approach and application across borders. Mm. Um, we have to be, um, you know, maybe not working harder, but we have to be behaving in a, in, in a more Ronnie O'Sullivan type way to achieve success. And, yes, and, and yes. Maybe we mentioned Ronnie O'Sullivan listeners because yeah. we said that um, he was the he would be the, the, the sporting equivalent or the recent snooker championship mm. equivalent of. But could you tell me what you're working on at the moment? Have you been doing anything that you think is uh, stuff you're excited about? Yeah, we've done, some, we've done some really good work recently for a mixture of businesses and I think part of the uh, value of being in a small independent agency, and maybe this is true of your question earlier about being the boss, mm. is we work with all sorts of types of businesses in all sorts of industries. 
we've just carried out some wonderful work for a law firm which culminated in them being acquired not necessarily any part to do with the success we had of the work that we did really? but we ran some brilliant ad campaigns and they've subsequently been acquired Langley's Langley's yeah, yeah. Langley's yeah. Um, Langley'sy campaign which was which was hugely uh, rewarding and it's one of the increasing number of clients we've won who we know have done the same training that our team has done which has made it really really easy to succeed because there's no hidden agendas or certainly no ambiguity between what we know they need to do and what they know they need to sure. do so we seem to be a lot more aligned but at the same time we're doing some brilliant work with Zen um, sorry to interrupt you but I think that the Langleasy work is very very good I, thought, I love the radio spot that you did it's, is it 30 seconds and you managed to get the major benefit, the benefit of working with Langlis in how many times? Oh. You turned the, the, the property that you've developed in for about around that brand into something that is in the spotlight. Uh, the voiceover, the tone of voice is absolutely bang on. Um, it's a it's a wonderful piece of wonderful piece of creativity. Yeah. Effectiveness as well. I'm sure it's worked gangbusters. Yeah, it was. I mean, the, the results of that campaign were significant, um, and the client couldn't wax more lyrically about the effects of that work. All of the, all of the metrics they'd put in place to measure the campaign success practically exploded. And as you say, inquiries and patch. Yeah, so that's um, Colin Lewis. I remember talking to Colin, and he was part of some of the one one eight ads. Yeah, and I don't remember the exact number of times that one one eight is mentioned in those TV spots, but it's it's certainly impressive. It's just one one eight, one one eight. Everything yeah. is one one eight, and I think pack shot and and making sure you you know you get the 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 benefits in the core benefits and you get the client name in all of the all of these basic things which sound so simple but are too often ignored. Completely, that leads yes. to great slash effective work, and that's the type of work we need to celebrate, not the fashionable mm. you know TikTok metaverse mm. work that's going on. That's not really moving the dial. The other point, to, though, that is relevant with Langley's is it was all built on proper research. Mm. And the, I mean, law firms typically, whether they like it or not, are a distressed purpose, whether you're doing it for your own personal reasons or commercial reasons, whatever it might be, they are a distressed purchase. And of all the industries that we currently work with, they are riddled with jargon. And, and, and working with a law firm, there seem to be all these kind of prohibitive um, obstacles in place mm. of engaging with Absolutely. a law firm. So the, the research basically shone a light on trying to emphasise how easy it is to work with Langley's. And so the, 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 the copy kind of wrote itself, or it began to write itself. And it, and it was hugely, hugely effective. They're a very um, conservative sector, though, and to get any kind of idea through them, I think, is like mm. swimming the channel, I would have thought. And didn't they say those 34 partners had to agree? Yeah. Yes. 34, you had 34 clients. Yeah. But actually, working with, working with the partners was surprisingly... It was easy. You know, mm. It really was, because we, they signed off the brief, and the brief was articulated as simply as possible to be, we wanted to communicate, we wanted to be unexpected, we wanted mm. to look and feel and sound like anything you would normally associate with a law firm. Yeah. So, and it, and it did that. So actually every time it came to presenting everything from the, you know, just the basic articulation of the law firm to the creative execution and how that actually took mm. shape, they were all incredible. 
uh, validating their response against the brief that they had already signed off weeks earlier. Yeah. So actually, it was, a, it was a breath of fresh air working with a law firm in that regard. Um, and you say they got bought. I would have yes. thought that the advertising had a, a, was, had a, was a large factor in that um, because it raised their profile, it raised their presence. The, 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 the purchaser thought they were getting a big brand, probably bigger than, than Langley's was. Yeah, I mean, it certainly, it certainly, it certainly didn't put them off acquiring the no. business. Um, no. It's difficult to, especially with attribution, it's difficult to claim what, you know, what led to success, but it certainly didn't, didn't hinder the process, I know that much. Can I tell you my law firm yeah. experience? We can edit this out, but uh, see what you want. We had a, a lawyer, a big city lawyer, who, whose speciality was arbitration, and they would take people who were going to court and they'd, they'd, they'd be the intermediary. They'd stop you from getting into court. They'd do the arbitration for arbitration lawyer. That was their speciality. Mm. Uh, and so what we did was we found the names of the legal directors for the FTSE 500 companies and we published them in the Times legal pages, their names and the company. Uh, so all 500 legal eagles for the FTSE yeah. 500 and the headline was make, make sure this is the last time your name appears in these pages <laughs> and then we emailed them and said you want to look in the in the times today you're in you're in the legal pages <laughs> okay now and uh, we got absolutely hammered <laughs> absolutely <laughs> hammered the client the client refused to pay for for the the fifty thousand pounds of the press ad, yeah, 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 um, yeah. It's, it's so, it's, as I say, uh, absolute <laughs> brilliant piece of work. I thought, yeah, you know, kind of like big, big, and, Did it work? Um, we never found out. I mean, they 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 threatened to sue the shit out of us yeah. because we'd um, because of the complaints they were getting from the from the legal eagles in Vodafone and yeah. HSBC and you name it. You know? Yeah, yeah. something else that happens when you run an agency is legal legal threats. Isn't mm. it? I've lost count of how many times we've been sued. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> you do a lot with YouGov, don't you? We had a, we had a partnership for yeah. some time with YouGov, uh, which allowed us a really rich uh, segmentation tool. Yeah. It gave us access to the segmentation tool. And what YouGov does, I mean, there, there's all sorts of research providers that we partner with, but, re but YouGov is probably unparalleled in terms of the, the specific variables that they track and measure, often passively, mm. of, of UK consumers. Um, so tapping into that as part of that research process that we go to for pretty That's much a great every resource. Mm. Good God. Yeah, You're certainly not making this shit up, are you? It's, uh, no, 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 we don't. And then the thing is, though, as, as um, I mean, we mentioned Rory, as he'll say, you know, the amount of data being measured and the amount of data that you can have access to via this and other tools is overwhelming. And actually, the, the trick isn't using as much data as you can, it's recognising the significance of different data points. And mm -hmm. iceberg straight ahead is just one data point, but it's fairly significant. So it's, it's all about taking measures and researching the consumer, yeah. but understanding which, which measures of attitudes or behaviours are actually applicable to the brief. And planners getting out there and actually then talking to people. And, oh, and you yeah. know, Martin Wegele, you know the guy who's the Warren yeah. Kennedy, yeah, yeah, yeah. brilliant Wonderful guy, he says the fact remains that much of the planning craft has become a zero consumer contact undertaking, yeah, yeah. with planners rarely being the doers of the research. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree more. There's pros and cons to being an agency based outside of London. Yeah. One of the pros is we are in, you know, a minority. I think I think you might have shared some original or some more accurate stats on this, but I think about ninety percent of people who work in agency land live in London, yeah, whereas ninety percent of consumers yeah. don't. Yes, of um, course. So yeah. actually, being a bit more attached to the real world outside of London, I think, is significant, and it reminds you. Yeah. what normal life actually looks like for people. Yes, yes. Although, I mean, in all fairness, with the agencies moving out to Dalston and, you know, kind of Hackney and everything, the real world and outside the bubble is there for them all to go and see. Yeah. But they don't. No. You know, they still get the agency Uber. They still go and get queue up for their sourdough bread from the artisan bakers <laughs> rather than going to the pine mash shop, yeah. you know. Yeah. So the real, it isn't just a living in London. You can actually experience real person, people living in, in, in London just as much as you could here in Reading. It's just that I think that we've become set in our ways. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we really have. So things seem to be pretty, you seem to be very busy, but always, I'm sure, open to... Suggestions from other potential clients. Do you want to say your telephone number? <laughs> yes, 0118 952 007. Good lad, good yeah. lad. Would you, if, you if, the, if the success continues, would you consider selling the shop? Would you consider making me an offer? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know. I mean, maybe one day I, I wonder what I would be selling. The only reason I say that is because we have very deliberately tried to engineer a small publishing arm to the business All right, in yeah. terms of Gas Books. Yeah. Uh, so there's isolated talks which kind of exist in its own right and actually that should probably be separated from the agency. I'm not against selling the business. We haven't had any offers of late. Mm-hmm. But what, what are your thoughts on selling um, as someone who has sold? Well, I sold because I didn't want to play five-a-side for the rest of my career. Mm. Uh, I've, um, I'd worked at, I'd started at Ogilvy and then I, we, Martin, Tim and I set up HPT Brand Response. Um, but it was like, it was, we, I just felt I was playing five-a-side football, you know, and I wanted to play in the Premier League, really. Mm. Um, and that's what our reverse takeover of Wonderman allowed us to do. And mm. um, we could do things at scale. Yeah. Um, so that was it. But mm. as soon as I finished my earn out, I had to pack in because I was unmanageable. Right. You know, I was no longer my own boss. Mm. And I'd become, you know, kind of so used to that. Mm. So, the, so whilst for the five years that I was doing my earn out, I was still in charge, mm. and then as soon as that was over, you know, you should just become a salaried employee, mm. taking orders from people mm. that you don't agree with. So, yeah. so it's it's a mixture of things. It depends yeah. whether you, if you can get to play in the Champions League whilst running this shop, then great. Mm. You know, or not in the Premier League by running the shop. All power to you, mm. really. I'd probably advise you to do that and stick at that for mm. for 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 the time being. Mm. And, I, and, I, and I'm not against the idea. I think um, so. My brother was involved in acquisitions for publicists, and he used to tell me some of the deals that were structured. And it wasn't uncommon for an agency, say, based in you know mid Middle Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. to approach publicists and say, "We would like to donate you or give you 
40% of our agency because they knew that retaining that 60% ownership but with 40% of the publicist's arm yeah. would pump some serious resource and value into it. So yeah. There's ways of doing it I found really interesting from a business perspective, for sure. Um, so maybe watch this space. You know, kind of, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people willing to... A lot of uh, big network agencies interested in you when you do uh, put the for sale sign outside. But that was fabulous. Thank yeah, you. Thanks, I Steve. I really enjoyed that. Um, it was it was nice hearing more about you, mm. um, and nice hearing about what you do for I should imagine ninety percent of your time. You know, kind of. Um, yeah, it's so all consuming. Fascinating. I hope everyone else thought it was interesting. And I particularly hope that potential clients thought it was interesting. <laughs> They'd be crazy not to. Yeah. Thanks very much, Charles. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. It's been, a, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank Cheers, you. Cheers, mate. Thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this bonus episode, please do share and review the podcast. We hugely value all support. Keep the questions and guest requests coming in as normal. Tune in next week for our 100th episode with an extra special guest. It's going to be mega. Written, I mean, mark my words. To get in touch with us, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Fuck off, fuck off, fuck off, fuck off. Fuck off, you massive big fat c- Try and I try and I try.